This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg and welcome to episode 8 of Inside COVID-19 where we get an on-the-ground report from Shanghai to assess the timeline for South Africa to get back to some normality and we'll hear from the United Nations that the virus has already wiped $500 billion off foreign direct investment. Also in this episode, we get to feel how the lockdown is impacting informal entrepreneurs and join the press conference for an update on the country's new Solidarity Fund. First, in the COVID-19 headlines today, the official number of South Africans infected with COVID-19 rose by just 4% yesterday to 1,326, with a third death reported in last night's update to the nation by President Cyril Ramaphosa. This number is, however, likely to rise sharply in the weeks ahead. As Ramaphosa said, 10,000 field workers will be deployed to conduct tests for the virus. He said that mobile phone technology would be used to trace and isolate people who had been in contact with those who test positive. Confirmed global infections have risen above 750,000, with 20% of them in the USA, almost twice as many cases as China's 82,000. Of those 82,000, 76,000 are reported as having recovered. Italy, with almost 100,000 confirmed cases, and Spain at 85,000 are also both above China, according to data compiled by John Hopkins University. Global deaths from COVID-19 now exceed 35,000, with a third of them Italians and 20% Spaniards. Media group Naspers has committed 1.5 billion rand in emergency aid in the war against COVID-19. A third of that will be injected into the new Solidarity Fund created by President Cyril Ramaphosa when he announced the 21-day lockdown last week. The NASPAS contribution will double the size of the Solidarity Fund to a billion rand. Also, NASPAS, together with the Chinese government and its 31% associate Tencent, will secure a billion rands worth of protective clothing and other medical supplies from China and fly it to South Africa as soon as possible. Banking group First Rand announced that it has established a 100 million rand fund to support the medical sector, helping to fund the purchase of 100,000 COVID-19 testing kits which arrived from Europe today. From the United States, President Donald Trump's about turn continued with his announcement that he is extending the country's social distancing rules until the end of April. He said the peak in the death rate was expected to hit the country in the next two weeks. Meanwhile, in China, the progress continues there with the major industrial provinces now resuming production after shutting down their plants two months ago. The rest of the world is watching China for signals on how long it will take to return to normality. Here's an inside track for you from Shanghai-based Elaine Pedal, Deputy CEO of Ping'an Health, 
the 35 billion rand a year business that's 25% owned by South Africa's Discovery. Apologies in advance for the poor audio quality, but given the fascinating insights, it's well worth persevering through the full six minutes. Elaine Peddle, who's the Deputy CEO of Pingan Health, joins us now from China. Mm. Um, Elaine, we uh, were just talking about issues here in the South African economy where the lockdown has just started. But being based in China, you've seen this happening for quite some time now. The COVID-19 situation started around Jan 20. But what's quite interesting, and I'm sure many of your, your listeners might be interested to know, but on February 10, we started bringing people back into the office. So all in all, it was about a three-and-a-half-week three lockdown. And that, in fact, took about five weeks to get things back to a state of some normality. Back to China on February, about February the 15th, um, and I've been in the office since. Uh, my family returned about two weeks ago, so they're just about to come out of quarantine. And I think, you know, one thing that I, I really need to say, speaking to everyone who's um, is going through this and so many other places, is there's definitely, definitely light at the other side of the tunnel. <laughs> you know, things have definitely knocked back to normal in Shanghai, but uh, it's, it's, it's functioning. Society's functioning again. <laughs> uh, you're still doing temperature checks into the building. People are all wearing masks. And you still have to show your QR code as you go into restaurants or into public transport to prove that you've been in Shanghai for 14 days. Uh, but we're interacting again. <laughs> I think, um, you know, some of the things that the Chinese have done spectacularly well, I would say, happening right down at the local organizing level, where sort of uh, right down at the suburb level, we've got um, officials and volunteers monitoring sections of suburb by section of suburb, where they're monitoring people coming in and out. And that's, I think, a very important step by the time South Africa moves into the stage of people moving around again. So some form of sort of controlled reintegration. And yeah, I hope that that technique is, is applicable elsewhere. Um, but the, the organizing capabilities of the Chinese are, are truly, I mean, they've been astonishing. Um, the other things that they've done, which I think have been really interesting, is that they've involved... Um, private companies in a way which um, I think, you know, many other countries can aspire to. Uh, but, for example, we've been very engaged in helping coordinate um, inside the Pingam Group uh, the purchases of local produce from distressed communities and uh, sending those as kind of food supplies to Wuhan. So, what you do is, as a private company, you're able to sort of support the efforts of government uh, at, at, on both sides of the, the, the financial equation, you know, helping stimulate the demand um, and keeping, um, you know, keeping these rural communities sort of in business and at the same time obviously addressing the challenges that they're facing Wuhan when a city of over 10 million people goes into lockdown. How's the progress going from the Chinese scientists' perspective on, on finding uh, cures or vaccines or, or at least some kind of assistance uh, to fighting COVID-19 on a clinical basis? Yeah, so I'm not a, I'm not a clinical expert. Uh, and certainly it's tricky to keep up to date with uh, all the research that's being done. But there are several tests uh, being conducted, uh, often with very large samples, working you know, very hard at finding, um, finding some form of, of vaccine or immunization. 
there have been no um, there have been no declarations of success as yet. The language we see is promising trials, um, and certainly there is quite a lot in the news about Europe, you know, progressing rapidly. Uh, but certainly nothing that that makes me think we're on the cusp of success. Alain, um, could you give us a time span? Because obviously, mm-hmm. sitting where we are in South Africa, we're now trying to work out mm-hmm. how long it will be before mm-hmm. we can get to the place that you're at now in China. No, I know. I thought about that often. So, as I said, so January 20, January 21 was when we first started seeing um, masks being issued. Lockdown happened about January the 23rd, and then February the 10th, certain businesses started going back to work. So that's three weeks. It seemed like a very long time. Uh, we started going back to the office where we had 20% of our staff in the office on a given day. So everyone basically worked in one day a week, and then we upped that week by week, 20, 40, 60, etc. Um, so that's another five weeks after that. Um, so I'd say after eight weeks, we were at a point where people were in the office, but meetings were heavily restricted. Everyone wears masks, the temperature scanned on the way in and the way out, and it's taken another, I'd say another three or four weeks to get to a point where it feels somewhat normal. So our three-week lockdown, if we put it, if we overlay that to the Chinese experience, would then take mm-hmm. us to mid-April. Uh, thereafter, it's still going to take maybe eight weeks to get to the point that you're at now. Yeah, I think so. Um, and that's, of course, making some heroic assumptions around all the other variables. <laughs> um, uh, you know, how comprehensive the shutdown being implemented, and then also the way in which the controls and the kind of human behavior plays out in the period after that. Um, uh, so it, it's, I, I think it's, it's difficult to map these experiences one place to another uh, directly. The Chinese, I think, my Chinese colleagues would certainly kind of applaud the decisions being taken in South Africa at the moment. Uh, and in truth, um, you know, there are many of my Chinese colleagues who are absolutely terrified um, that other parts of the world just didn't pay enough attention. UNCTAD, or the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, estimates that COVID-19 has already cost the world $500 billion in foreign direct investment, with a slump likely to continue into 2021. UNCTAD this week issued a second special COVID-19 edition of its authoritative Global Investment Trends Monitor, which tracks fixed investment around the world. Here's Richard Bolvane, leader of the team that compiles the report. We have now just had uh, two special issues in rapid succession to reflect the, the updates that are required now with the, uh, the coronavirus situation and with forecasts now of, of a recession worldwide. Of course, uh, the, the trend will be much more negative. A, for very practical reasons, all of the greenfield projects that were announced last year or that were announced in in the final quarters of last year are on hold. It's difficult with plant closures and uh, physical closures of of construction sites to continue investing. So a lot of projects are, uh, are on hold, capital expenditures are on hold, and a lot of recently announced projects are basically shelved uh, indefinitely. 
So we see a, a big decline there. It's difficult to have hard data on this at the moment. The only country where uh, we can really see what is happening is uh, China, because they were the first to be hit. And uh, in China, the National Statistics uh, Agency showed a 25% decline in capital expenditures in the first quarter. But one has to reckon with the fact that the crisis really only started midway through January. Um, and the, the, the harsh measures to, to mitigate or to, to slow down the crisis started mid-January. Um, and of course, only in part of the country, uh, gradually, which means that the peak effect on CapEx is going to be, is going to be much more severe than the 25% that have been measured so far. Other uh, data that can show how investment plans are really being shelved or postponed indefinitely uh, is just by looking at announced M&A projects. They are usually between 1,000 and 12, 1,300 every month worldwide. And they are just sinking now this month that is now wrapping up to about 400. So that's uh, on course for a 70% decline if it goes, uh, if it moves on like this. So those are the, just the first indications. It is really hard to put, uh, to put a number on it. Um, we have simply looked at the earnings expectations for companies, for multinational companies. To look at trends in foreign direct investment worldwide, we closely monitor the top 5,000 multinational enterprises because they account for a significant share of global FDI. And they have, just since the 1st of February, they have shown revised earnings estimates by analysts of minus 30% over the year with peaks of minus 200% in the energy sector, of course, because of the, the, the much lower oil prices, but also um, uh, more than 100% downwards revision, basically a zero profits for a number of other consumer cyclicals, for airlines, for the leisure sector, and big declines also for the automotive sector and other sectors that depend heavily on global supply chains. These, the type of firms that were, saw the first earnings revisions were exactly those, uh, automotive, electronics, um, because at first the, in, the impact was thought to be mostly a global supply chain problem when much of the pandemic or the, at the time epidemic crisis was confined to China, East Asia. Um, but now that it's become a global crisis and now that it's become, uh, it has translated into estimates, consensus now around the world of a global recession. It's no longer just a global supply chain problem, of course. It's now a big um, issue of demand for investment worldwide. Are you able to quantify what the number would be in the drop in foreign direct investment around the world for this year as a result of COVID-19? In other words, is there a, a particular number that you can pull out to say, this is what the virus has cost the world or likely to cost the world this year? Anywhere between 400 and 500 billion uh, dollars, US dollars. Um, global FDI flows last year were about 1.4 trillion. And we are projecting a 30 to 40% drop this year at this moment uh, under current conditions. And that, rep that uh, figure, as you've seen from, our, from the rapid succession of our assessments on this, uh, is on its way down. So it could uh, cost the world quite a lot already this year in uh, global FDI flows. And it might well go into next year because, as I said, the effect on foreign direct investment of a shock in GDP growth is usually a, a longer term effect. It takes, uh, it, it takes at least a year 
to work itself out. Coming back home, the impact of South Africa's COVID-19 lockdown for some informal entrepreneurs has been devastating. Here's the author of Cosinomics, Gigi Alcock. You know, the, the misconception is that the informal economy is just in the township, but uh, a large proportion of it is in the kind of inner cities and taxi ranks and stuff like that. And so a lot of the guys who are taking real um, strain um, from this have been the, the, the informal sector within the kind of cities. Um, I mean, even going as far as the taxis, I spoke to a friend who's in the, who owns taxis in Soweto this morning, and uh, the taxis that do the local business that is in essence around the, within the township are, are, are kind of struggling, but they're still operating. Of course, all the guys who are going into the inner cities or to the the urban taxi ranks are practically, um, you know, have lost all their business. So, um, and and so a lot of the township-based businesses are still doing. Not okay, but are still doing business. Um, and, and, um, you know, they kind of, because they're local, the spaza shops, for an example, are, are within walking distance. And so they're providing quite a vital part in terms of grocery products and stuff um, close to people's homes. Surely one of the big concerns is that when people get angry, uh, when they don't have money, uh, those spaza shops and spazarettes, as you call them, many of which are, uh, are run by Somalis or foreigners, do become under threat. We've seen it before uh, where there's been looting, etc. Is this something that that, uh, people are mindful of? Yeah, so we've been monitoring that uh, with a a colleague of mine, Ibrahim, who's a Somali South African. Um, And what we've seen is about 80% of the spazarets, the more supermarket-type spazas, are open. Um, but what they've done is they're dropping their stock levels um, quite um, dramatically mm. because um, they're afraid that, uh, you know, when people run out of money or, or dramas, they'll be the first target in terms of looting for food and stuff like that. Uh, a lot of them are then also opening at certain times. So they'll open for two hours in the morning and two hours in the afternoon um, and then kind of closed when, um, you know, in the, in the middle of the day. So the operating hours are, are limited. So, I mean, I think on the one hand, I mean, you know, the, the drama has been that the Minister of Small Business and others haven't actually clarified, you know, who is allowed to operate. They've said things like only South African spas owners, et cetera, which is, is sad because these spas are actually supplying, you know, good quality branded food products um, right within people's uh, streets. So someone doesn't have to take a taxi and incur that cost, number one. Number two, they don't have to take a taxi and be exposed more. You know, so I think that they actually need more support. Mm. That is a rather strange thing for a minister to say in a country which has, um, well, it's already been a hotbed of xenophobia in the past. Is that confirmed or, or uh, did you did you actually hear that? Apparently, it was fake news and it was withdrawn. So, um, but I mean, the point is, is that's the word on the street. So, the police, for instance, um, in Soshangobe, north of uh, Pretoria, were closing spazarets and saying to them, if they weren't um, South African, they couldn't operate. Um, so, those are anecdotal stories of what's happened. I don't know how widespread it is, but there have been incidents of it. Um, so, the rumor is out there. Whether it's fake news or, or real, I, I wouldn't know. But I think uh, either way, it would need some sort of clarity, official clarity to be shared. So, one would hope then that people in Pretoria are watching this carefully because uh, I guess the other point, and you've, you've spoken about this a lot, is there's a 20 billion rand industry 
with backyard rentals. Now, that's fine for the moment because people are being paid, but I guess if the lockdown continues and those people don't get the money that uh, because they're not at work, that could turn nasty. Yeah, so look, I mean, uh, that goes across the, the entire spectrum. I mean, I think, you know, there's huge amounts of um, money generated by that informal economy that's sustaining livelihoods, whether it's the backroom rental or hawkers and taxiing selling vegetables and so on. And the, the, the thing is, is that what are the ripple effects of not earning that money? I mean, both the backroom rentals and the advantage of the backroom rental is still there when the, the kind of uh, money run, uh, you know, when the lockdown ends and money starts coming back in. But uh, the biggest problem is more, I guess, people like the hawkers who are selling potatoes and tomatoes and stuff, um, you know, who run out of money. They don't have then the cash to to purchase new um, mm-hmm. milk and, and so on. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that the um, the repercussions are very much on that kind of sector in the sense that people don't have the cash flow. And then there's a massive ecosystem, whether it's the backroom rental or the local water outlet and so on, that's impacted um, in terms of the money that's rotating within that economy. G.G. Alcock, uh, the oh. author of a number of books on the spot on the Kazi uh, Cosinomics, as he calls it, David. It does make a, a difference, and we're going to be talking to Gigi hopefully throughout this uh, every wow. week, just to get a, an understanding of of how things are going. It, it is a bit of a tinderbox, it, and how it is. And I think we all worry about that, particularly uh, with the downgrade and more people in the formal sector being laid off. You know what the consequences of that are going to be. South Africa's Solidarity Fund, whose formation was announced by President Cyril Maposa in his State of Disaster address, has raised 500 million rand in its first week. So far, 52 million rand has been used to buy 5 million masks, with healthcare workers first in the queue. Chairpersons of the fund, Gloria Sarobi and Adrian Enthoven, provided detail this morning of the focus of the Solidarity Fund, which is humanitarian aid for societies most vulnerable not for NGOs or to finance small businesses. We're quite encouraged that hardly a week the fund is in place. We have uh, over 500 million rand, and that is a combination of uh, corporates and the contribution from government and most exciting individuals who have given their own money, their own family money. And um, as you say, it is a week now, and that is the amount that is already there. The intention here is not to accumulate the fund so much because it must work. Uh, We're not quite excited about uh, that uh, we've collected and kept, and and the money must work. It, It must work appropriately. It must go to where it should go. The fund is meant to galvanize the resources and efforts to fight against the pandemic. And what that means is that the fund will be used to get to where it is most needed. And so if we buy health uh, protective uh, uh, materials and so on, there's no NGO that's required in between unless it is a resource to get there. So the fund is not going to fund SMMEs specifically or uh, NGOs 
But as part of these three areas that we have mentioned, the healthcare, the, the solidarity campaigns, the, all those areas of focus, the fund will crowd in all manner of resources to make it work. It may be NGOs then, but the fund itself is not meant to come and fund NGOs. It is meant to fight against the COVID-19. And the ultimate person who must benefit from this is the person who needs to be protected or at least supported uh, from this uh, pandemic. The, the PPE procurement uh, you know, is a very significant procurement. I mean, in, in relation to, to the application of funds, the, the three areas that we are currently focused on being the uh, health, health response, uh, the solidarity campaign and the humanitarian effort is, you know, what are the best mechanisms for dispersing funding to have the greatest possible impact in those areas? And, you know, I would add that I think a huge contribution that the fund can make is not just in the disbursement of funds, but is also in the way that we inspire and mobilize, you know, citizens, communities, organizations, companies, civil society organizations in this national effort, you know, to contribute, you know, resources that are going to be far more significant in the resources of the fund. In relation to the SMMEs, because I think there's been some confusion about this uh, in, in the media, as Gloria says, uh, our direct focus is not to provide and support SMMEs. Uh, there's an initiative between Business South Africa, uh, Business for South Africa and uh, the Command Council to try to come up with support measures and, and packages with governments to support SMMEs, but the fund is not in a position uh, to provide soft loans or support to SMMEs. The Oppenheimer and Rupert initiatives that have been well publicized uh, are initiatives that uh, are best seen to be um, responses to the call for national solidarity and, and the call for, for South Africans to unite to, to, to respond to the, you know, both the health and the, and, the, and the social and the economic crises that we're facing. And those two initiatives are designed in, within the, the broad um, ambit of the Solidarity Fund to respond to supporting those people whose lives have been affected, and in their case specifically, employees of, of distressed uh, small and medium-sized businesses. But I think that those initiatives are best seen within, under the broad umbrella as a solidarity response. They're not funds that are directly under the control of the Solidarity Fund, and there will be more and more of those kinds of Responses, and I think you know we are encouraging as a solidarity fund. We're encouraging um, organisations, individuals, communities to respond in that way, you know, as part of this national solidarity effort. And it's kind of you know very encouraging to see that happening. The fund doesn't have the um, the capacity to support SMMEs, so our funding currently, the money that's come into the fund is not going to be directed at uh, supporting SMMEs. We're looking to Business for South Africa and to government to respond to the urge, I mean, we recognize the need, the urgent need to respond to, um, to uh, SMMEs that are distressed. Um, but that is something that, that we, we don't see that our funding can, can, we have the capacity in the Solidarity Fund currently to respond to that. Um, but we do recognize it as an as a absolutely critical and urgent issue that does need to be addressed. You know, a huge part of our effort is going to be focused on the health response, which is not communications related. It's about it's about what is the opportunity for us to complement the national health response with the greatest impact, the greatest leverage, 
that we can with the with the limited funds we have available. Uh, you know, we've spoken about that, and obviously we've also spoken about the importance of us mobilizing and re- and resourcing to the extent that we can the humanitarian uh, efforts and humanitarian response. And that could be across a range of things. We've spoken about food security. There's a question that was raised about gender-based violence. That's another hum- critical humanitarian um, issue that we're looking at. We're not quite clear at this stage exactly how we're going to do that, but you know, we that is very much kind of focusing our minds. I mean, in relation to the solidarity campaign, I think we shouldn't just see this as a communication campaign. The idea of this campaign is it's a call to action. So it's about um, not just how we as a solidarity fund mobilize a call to action, but how societies and communities and organizations also become part of that mobilization. We don't want to just see this as a kind of top-down communication process. We want to see this as how society mobilizes around the need for solidarity, around the need for action, how we all take responsibility as individuals, communities, organizations, and how we all act um, in the national effort to address the crisis. So I think it's important. This is not a kind of conventional, you know, normal top-down communication campaign. This is a this is a, a national call to action, I think, is a better way of thinking of the solidarity campaign. This has been Episode 8 of Inside COVID-19. Until tomorrow, I'm Alec Hogg. Cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.